Well, we pick up um, in Mark's Gospel. If you will, turn in your uh, pew Bibles to page 995. And we're reading in Mark chapter 1. Yes, this is our sixth week, and we're still in chapter 1, but Lord willing, we'll get to chapter 2. We're picking up in verse 35. Mark chapter 1, verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for this, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. But he went out. And began to talk freely about it and spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I wonder if I were to ask you, are, are you would you describe yourself as a, as a head person or would you describe yourself as a heart person? I wonder if you, you, you feel like you lean one way over another. We tend to see this in, a, in the church quite a lot, don't we? Typically, younger people tend to be heart people, and older generations tend to be more concerned with head things. Is it about what you do, or is it about what you know, and, or how you think Are these two things in conflict with each other? A person can certainly know the gospel intellectually and yet not love their neighbor. Just as someone can be compassionate towards outcasts and and, and compassionate towards impoverished people and yet not know the gospel. Well, what about Jesus? Was he just all truth and, 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 and gospel message with very little care for people? Or was he all care for people and soft on the message? The liberal progressive church would have you believe that he was all about people and very little to do with about doctrine and, and absolute truth. And at the other end of the spectrum, the, the sort of fundamentalist, ultra-conservative, and down this line I'm talking kind of Westboro Baptist church, who would say that Jesus was just 
truth, truth, truth. People are going to hell. And he has no care for, for people. You see, both of these are wrong. They're incorrect. They're unbiblical. What is the image that we are presented with, with Christ here? If, you'll, if you've got your pew Bible, if you'll flip over with me to page 713 to Isaiah chapter 40. What does the prophet say that the Messiah will be like? Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 9. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. He brings good news. He comes with might. His recompense, his reward is with him. And he is also tender with his lambs. His message is not at the expense of his tenderness, and his tenderness is not at the expense of his message. The two go together. And we see that so masterfully and so beautifully here at the end of Mark chapter 1. Bruce and I were uh, chatting this past week, and we were lamenting the fact that there is such an abundance of material, even in just these 10 verses. But as a preacher, you have to leave things uh, on the cutting room floor, so to speak. Uh, but the good news is that we leave them there for you to go back and wrestle out yourselves. So consider that homework for yourselves. Uh, some gentle laughter. <clears throat> now, I want us to look together at how Christ perfectly models miracles and message, compassion and conviction. Verse 35, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. The morning after what? The morning after what? The morning after Jesus sent a demon out of a man in the synagogue. The morning after he's healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law from a fever. The morning after the village brought all of their sick and demon-possessed to be healed by Jesus. The morning after his fame spread everywhere throughout the region. And he goes to a deserted place alone. The same word used for wilderness here. He goes out into the wilderness to pray to his father. There are three times uh, in Mark's gospel that Mark mentions Jesus praying. This passage here, after a night of tremendous healing... 
In chapter 6, after the great feeding, and in chapter 14, before the cross, three times Jesus prays in Mark's gospel. And it looks like each one of these moments in time seem to be a crisis moment. They are moments where Jesus almost seems to be asking, Father, should I be doing this? I love healing people. This is good. And I know this is what was prophesied. Father, help me to see this clearly. Should I be doing this full time? I love feeding people, showing people this. Should I be doing this full time? I'm about to go to the cross. Should I be doing this? Would it be better if I did something else? And every time he emerges from his time with his father with clarity. He realizes that his ministry is not to stay in Galilee and perform healings full time. In chapter 6, he realizes that it's not his job to stay and feed people with food full time. And he realizes in chapter 14 that the cross is necessary. Dying in our place. And one of the ways in which he is able to die for us is because he is obedient. And that is what he is doing here in Mark chapter 1. He's gained popularity. He's gained fame. He's stirred up a crowd. Who of us wouldn't want to have some sort of a following? To draw a crowd, to have people from whatever our respective communities are, be drawn to us. But Jesus wakes up early and he goes into the wilderness and he lays it all before his father. And at great cost to his own popularity and at great cost to many of the sick, he is convinced and convicted that he has something else that he must do. So Simon Peter rushes to find him. I mean, the word is almost like they were hunting him down. And he says to him, everyone is looking for you. And Jesus' response is really quite shocking. Uh, We're going forward. We're going this way. We're not going back. We're going to the next town so that I can preach, for that is why I came out. I came to preach. I didn't come to be a celebrity. I didn't come just to perform miracles, but I came to preach. Look at Peter's words here. Everyone is looking for you. It's as if Peter is saying, they want you. Let's go back and draw the crowds. Let's, you know, he's, he's, he's the sort of chief marketing officer. This is working for you. Your ministry is doing great. Why would you go into the wilderness? What are you doing praying in here? Go back. Take advantage of this, Jesus. But, but Jesus knows after his time in prayer that it is not what he was sent to do exclusively. We have to remember, though, as, we, as we've talked about this, that Peter is the primary source for Mark in his writing of this gospel. 
which means that Peter recognized himself as a hindrance or an obstacle to Jesus' mission. It's very sort of Caesarea Philippi feel to it, doesn't it? Jesus says he's going to die, he's going to a cross, and Peter says, no, we won't let that happen. I won't let that happen. Even if these guys do, I'm not going to let that happen. He's essentially tempting Jesus to say, you can have a crown without a cross. And Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan, because he's tempting, just as Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. You can have all of this if you'll just do this one thing. But Peter is telling Mark this, and and, and it's showing his his humility and his honesty. I'm not, I'm not, I was no hero. Mark, write that down. Make sure you write that down. In fact, it's in Mark's account that when he denies Jesus three times, it says that, and then Jesus turned and looked at him on the third time, right? Something only Peter would have been able to recall. Then again, thinking about this phrase, everyone is looking for you. Every time that it's used in Scripture, it's used in reference to taking advantage of him. What have you done for me lately? Give us the healing. Give us the miracles. Give us the the goodies. Leave that preaching at home. Or it's in reference to people who want to harm him. They're seeking you. They're looking for you. So this phrase does not throw Jesus off. He sees right through it. It's like a a wealthy person and and people keep coming up and saying, you know, all these people want to meet with you. They want to talk to you. They they really just want to pitch their ideas to you. Or, or, you know, a pretty girl and, and it's, you know, hey, all the boys really want to talk to you. They really want to meet you. I've had this, not as a pretty girl, but... Was, I think a few months ago, we were standing around, and, and um, Gabe and one of the sound guys and I were standing around, and we were noticing how, you know, the nine o'clock's really built in numbers. And Gabe said, uh, well, you know, that all started around the same time that I started playing bass. <laughs> and then the sound guy said, it's not our current sound man, who's not his fault for the microphone not being on. I had just not switched it on earlier. But the, the, the sound guy that was with us said, well, that's the same time I started running sound. It must have been something I've done, right? And then I thought, well, I've been preaching in this service for a few years. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good reflection. Maybe I've just figured out how to preach all of a sudden. That was a joke. <laughs> Maybe it's not. <laughs> but do you see? We can be so easily fooled by numbers by drawing a crowd. And Jesus is not fooled by crowds. He is clear on his purpose. He spent time with his father getting clarity on what that purpose is. And he's not thrown off by small numbers either. We joke as a staff sometimes when we ask someone, hey, how did that event go? And the answer in response is a numerical value. And sometimes that's the only answer that's comes back to us. How many, how many people came? Th- that, that's like a benchmark of our success when the truth is it's not. Now, numbers are good. There's an entire book of the Bible that's dedicated to numbers. 
But that is not always our lead indicator. So although these words of Jesus may look harsh, Jesus is speaking here with perfect conviction and perfect compassion. Why? If Jesus stays in Galilee and has a healing ministry, what does that really do for people? They are made well only to die. It deals with symptoms, but it doesn't deal with the disease itself. It's a band-aid solution, and it's kind of a bad one at that because it gives a false hope. And it sort of sends the message that it's, this is all about just living your best life now. <laughs> we make that joke a lot, but that's the reality, and that's really the world we live in today, isn't it? All you do is you're just staving off and pushing back the inevitable. There's no salvation in physical healing, and therefore there is no hope and there is no future. He would be massively popular. He would be solving immediate problems, but he would not be loving people eternally. And he would not be setting his eyes on the future. But the good news is that he does. And he did. This is the dilemma, isn't it? Think future. Tell of the good news. Prepare people for eternity. Or relieve immediate needs. Deliver from physical pain. But provide no way of escape from hell. No hope. No salvation. Well, you might be sitting there thinking, well, why not do both? Right? Well, that is what Jesus does. Healing, miracles, preaching, proclaiming. But you see, we have to understand that it is the preaching ministry that interprets the healing ministry. We said this last week. All the healings and the miracles, what are you, what are you left with if there's no lesson from it, if there's no preaching from it, if there's no message of the gospel, the hope that you cannot save yourselves, that, that your attempt to uphold the law only shows that you can't uphold the law? What, what, what is it for? But the thing is, if... Jesus becomes so overwhelmed with the healing ministry, it impedes on his preaching ministry. And that really hinders the whole work of Christ. He is a primarily a teacher, not a healer. The key to his ministry is the gospel, which revolves around his death. And he spends, if, he, if he were to spend all of his time healing people and there's no preaching and there's no dying, then there is no future for people. But Christ is compassionate and we thank God for his conviction to not just do short-term superficial work, but to press ahead with what he came out to do. It makes me so thankful for Christ and what he did, being filled with compassion and healing, demonstrating his power, but at the same time remaining focused on the task ahead and not being sidetracked with popularity and fame. It makes us consider what it is that we pursue in our own lives 
Do we chase after the things that will make us well-liked, the things that will make us loved in whatever our community is, even if they are good things, even if they are Christian things? Or do we set before us prayerfully what the Father calls us to do? I read uh, an article recently, I think it's only a few months or a year old, and it was, if you've seen the movie Spy Kids, the female actress in that, she, she's in her mid-30s now, I think, and she was acted in a few other things. She got married, she went to a Bible study, met her husband, they got married, and they realized we have no biblical community in California, and this, is, this isn't working for us. And all they really wanted to do was just raise their kids and be parents and have a tight-knit Christian community. And so they moved to Hawaii. I don't don't know if that's better or worse. (laughs) But the point is, they found a a, a loving Christian community, and they walked away from fame and, and fortune and all the things that they'd probably grown up their whole life pursuing and thinking were best. But they had a an exchange, and they changed what what it was that they desired, and they changed what it was that they loved and what they wanted to pursue. And so they're able to walk away from it all, prayerfully going and saying, what is it that you would have us do? And now they raised their three kids uh, in Hawaii. Now, I'm not sure what their theological convictions are at the deepest level. I do know they say they're Christians, so don't come back to me and say, did you know that they are part of some weird cult? I really hope they're not. <clears throat> then we come to this second part of the passage. So this is our first little paragraph that we've covered here. The second part of our passage is Jesus coming across a man who is sick. Ha, huh, ironic. And he's a man who's in need of healing, and he is right in the path of Jesus. And what do we expect I mean, if you think about it, Mark is brilliant. He's just said, no, we're we're not going back and doing the healing stuff. We're moving forward because I came to preach. And you come across someone who actually needs healing. What's going to happen? What what are we expecting? Well, based on what we just read, he's going to be like all the people that walked around the the injured, hurt uh, Jewish man who had been robbed in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Sorry, no time for you. Just made a declaration. He's going to say, no, 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 no. I just said that we're not going to do healings and miracles. My task is to preach, and I'm going to the next town. I'm very sorry. You came at the wrong time. That's what you would expect based on that last paragraph. But what we see instead is how miracles and message, and conviction, and compassion come together. They fit together beautifully. The conviction rules the compassion as it should. It doesn't remove compassion, but rather it's almost like a dance. And they're moving together, and they're flowing together, and they move together perfectly in the life of Jesus. You could read the end of that first paragraph and think, Why, Jesus is a hard man. But you read that with the second paragraph and you think, Jesus is incredible. This man with leprosy comes up to Jesus and he asks him if he's willing to make him clean. 
Not can you make me clean, but are you willing? Because he knows he can do it. He's just healed all those people last night. But perhaps the man has heard Jesus' resolve to, to preach. And so he asks him, are you willing? And Jesus, full of compassion, will never walk around him. He reaches out and he heals him. Now consider the church called to preach the the good news of the gospel, not very popular, and to be a help to those around us, social action, very popular. We are grateful for a passage like this because the church must know what we stand for. We must be clear what we stand for. Our primary role is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ so that people will hear and believe and be saved. It is more important than than short-term relief, even though short-term relief is wonderful. We must stay with our primary task, which is the eternal gospel, But having said that, when something presents itself right in the path, and it will do that because there will always be a need for compassion. There will always be needs. What would it say of us if we were to not be compassionate? We would be the Pharisees. We would be hypocrites. That is not what a disciple of Christ would do to walk around the person. No, we should rush in with compassion and care. Just by example, we all know that Roe v. Wade was overturned. Hooray, great. But if we just sat and said, good, that's done. What would we have actually done? Nothing. We just walked around the person in need and said, Good news! Great! But what we have done, and I'm grateful for the leaders who sit on the missions committee, they've increased their giving here from the church for all of the pregnancy centers that we support. Because we know that there will be an abundance of of mothers and children coming in confused who are looking for help. And that is just a financial thing. We have many from here who who go and who serve and and are in person in a lot of these centers offering help and assistance and comfort for mothers and for children. And that's just one example. We haven't lost the gospel in any of this. It is still primary, but it comes with a compassionate hand and not a cold shove. Jesus, in this passage, comes across a leper, a person who is a total outcast. They are 
cast out of their family. By law, they are cast out of their family. They are cast out of the temple. They are even cast to the city limits. And they must announce their coming by crying out, unclean, unclean. I mean, talk about a scarlet letter. You've got to prevent contamination to the rest of the community so you are sent out. This is all part of the Old Testament law. And this man is coming to Jesus, something that the law forbids. And Jesus, the text says, is moved with pity for this man. And his response to the question, are you willing to make me well, is I will be clean. And so we see Jesus full of conviction of what he must do and what he must sacrifice. We also see full of compassion. And in case you're beginning to think that Mark is forgetting the importance of salvation, look at what Jesus says to the man. It's a strong word. He sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer your cleansing for your cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. Why does he send him to the priest? Well, first of all, that's what they're supposed to do. When a healing has taken place, you present yourself to the priest. Why? One, so the priest can reinstate you into the community. Two, it's a very loud vehicle. When he shows himself to the priest, what do you think the natural reaction of the priest is going to be? Great. Come on in. No. How did this happen? How did this happen? And what is the answer? Well, we have to assume that he, he can at least speak to the priest. Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth did this. And the priests, knowing the Old Testament, that it was almost always God who brought the healing to people with leprosy, would have to start thinking, has Messiah come? Could it be? The third reason he sends him to the priest is because it's to help out Jesus himself. If the man goes public, we repeat the whole cycle over that we just finished. The crowds will come out again, and Jesus will be popular again, and the healing demands will come forth again, and the message will be that Jesus has come to be our healer. But Jesus has come to preach the good news and to die on the cross. And if the people are clamoring for, for Jesus, he can't get his work done. If the man keeps quiet, Jesus can continue to do his work freely. But you see in verse 45, the man was disobedient. He did the exact opposite of what he was told. He went and he spread the news. So Jesus can no longer openly enter a town, but was out in peopleless places, in desolate places. He's back out in the wilderness. Do you see the significance of what is happening here? The outsider, the outcast, has become an insider. And the insider, Jesus, has become an outsider. He's been cast out by giving this man access to the fellowship of God's 
people, Jesus is now paying the price of losing it. And on a bigger scale, this is how the gospel works. We, all of us, are outsiders. And through the gospel, we are made insiders into God's family, but it is at the expense of him, the insider, the only insider, being driven out. That is why on the cross, bearing the sin of his people, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you driven me out? The reason is because our sin is on him. And it needs to be atoned. It needs to be paid for. And Jesus full of compassion, full of conviction, pays in full. The gift that comes as a result is that we are brought inside into the family of God. What He provides, He suffers to provide. And so we have head and heart combined not at odds with one another, but working together, giving us a picture of our Savior. And so I'll ask you again, are you a head person or are you a heart person? I hope that you are challenged to see that we are called to be both. Let us pray. Father, I am so grateful for head people, people who spend copious amounts of time in your word and, and, and looking at doctrine and looking at teaching. But Lord, we know that that would all be a waste if they are without compassion. We think of the words in 1 John that we, we have to have love within us. Because all of that study of doctrine and all of that study of theology has to inform the believer that we are called to love and I'm grateful for people who are compassionate and they do fantastic work and they serve in communities and they, they are great help to so many. But Lord, if they have no doctrine teaching them, telling them that, that there's an ultimate hope in this, that these are only temporary, then it's all for what? To expend some, extend some time. And so, Father, we need to hold these two together. Just as Christ has modeled this for us, we know we can't do it perfectly. But we ask, Father, that whether we are a head person or a heart person, you would help us to see balance, that you would give us patience in growing in this. As we are your followers, we are your children and we consider the great cost at which Christ came, holding those two things together with great compassion and with great conviction. 
So help us to be true Christ followers. For it is in his name we pray. Amen.